With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's always soccer in Philadelphia coming at you on a Tuesday night or whenever you may be listening to the podcast. Big week for the Philadelphia Union who go up to Red Bull Arena on Wednesday night for the round of 16 U.S. Open Cup game against New York. And then Sunday back on national television uh, at 5 o'clock with the New England Revolution coming to town. The winning streak, uh, well now it is a winning streak because the losing streak is over. They beat D.C. Uh, one to nothing on Saturday night. And joining me a very special guest, uh, somebody who is one of the guys who whenever he writes something I read it uh, almost immediately and I make a point to do that. Mr. Adam Kahn from the Philly Soccer Page. Adam, what's going on, man? Oh, thanks, man. We appreciate it. And uh, I got to say, you, you've, if you're a listener and you read PSP, I'm sure you've read Adam's tactical stuff. It's very, very good, very in-depth uh, from somebody who played the game at a very high level. And, you know, tactics is something that I've tried to write about as well over the last couple of years, something that's of interest to me and in my wheelhouse. I think Adam probably knows a little bit more than I do, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to have him together here so we can kind of talk about some of those ideas together so you know, let's just let's just start out with this Adam. let's just talk about the dc game uh you know they broke the losing streak and they got back in the uh, winning column it wasn't a thing of beauty it wasn't necessarily an instant classic but they did some things well and, and andre blake kind of stood on his head what, what were your takeaways from the game and what'd you see i mean it, it's another game where i think your column last week highlighted the big problem which is that they didn't have anything from the number 10 position and because of that they couldn't control the tempo and as a result they uh they barely hung on against the dc side that they probably should have wiped the floor with i mean a, a ian hark's chair jeffrey midfield is is something that you actually can't sneeze at it's nothing special so that was my big takeaway is that the, the problem we all thought they had they they still have and and andre blake needed to save them against dc at home and that's that's rough you know, the interesting thing to me is that, well, the irony, I guess, is that today Jim Curtin said that Elias Aguilar was not going to sign with the team because he wasn't a fit. And he kind of poo-pooed the idea that they had, you know, that there was a discrepancy between wanting to loan or wanting to buy. That's what I heard, and that's what was coming out of Costa Rica. Uh, but point being, you know, they don't have a new number 10 yet. Um, Roland Aubrey, I mean, my, my opinion is this. Roland Aubrey's not really a number 10. He's more of a second striker, withdrawn forward. El Cino, we know, is not a number 10. Um, Alejandro Bedoya, we knew, was not a 10. So, I mean, what what happened here? Were they just kind of counting on Roland Alberg to be that guy and he just turned out not to be that guy? That's that's the only thing I can imagine because, it, I mean, if you look at the depth that they have behind Bedoya at the 10, uh, all they had was Alberg. That was the only real option except Adam Najem. And I, I don't know, you've probably seen Najem play more than I have, uh, but I, I would imagine he's a little ways away from making a big difference. Yeah, Najem is interesting, too, because I think he's kind of a tweener. Uh, I don't think they know where they want to play him right now. He was been, he's been used as a number 10, uh, and he's been used as a number 8, eight at Steel. He moves the ball around a little bit like Vince Nogueira, but they want him to be in advanced positions, too. I mean, what, what do you do here? Do you just ride ride the wave with El Senior until you can get an upgrade in the transfer market? I, I mean, I, I hate watching El Senior play the 10. You know, I, I don't have anything against him as a player, <laughs> but, man, it, it just drives me crazy to watch him play that position. He's, he doesn't 
lead the center. I mean, you heard Jim Curtin talk about after the game, you know, getting getting support for the wings is not happening right now with El Senior at the 10. And until they can do that, they're not going to be able to hold the ball in the final third. And they haven't done that for a while. I don't see what El Senior is going to do to change that regularly. I mean, he has his moments, but you can see him when he opens up in the middle of the field, he just sort of points to his feet. He doesn't, he has no intent of moving players around because he's used to being on the wing. And uh, I mean, that's going to be a huge problem and it's going to mean there's a lot more pressure on Bedoya to get forward and fill those those gaps behind the fullbacks when they get him out of position. But they're just not going to take advantage of these good situations they're creating. Well, that segues perfectly into the next thing I wanted to ask, which is, you know, Jim, I don't know if you heard the quote that Jim had from the very end of his press conference, post-game press conference at D.C., but he talked about this right-sided tilt uh, in their build-up play. And it's something that we've kind of seen over the last couple of weeks. It started, I guess, when Alejandro Bedoya moved back to the number eight spot. He's a right-footed player, a natural winger. I think he just tends to drift to that side naturally because that's where he's comfortable. And also Harris Madunianin being a left-footed player tends to receive the ball and open up that way. So I found a passage of play from that game where, as you alluded to, Elsino doesn't check to the ball. He's also right-footed. So, you know, do you see that same lopsided kind of weird buildup in, in the play that I see? Yeah, and, uh, you know, I actually remember you were one of the first people to point it out, and, and it's it's been odd to try and hear the different explanations for it until Jim Biden came out and said, yeah, I see it from the sideline, and it's there, and no one really knows why. It's sort of like a a crop circle on the field. You just have this right-sided tilt and it happens very consistently. And and I, I, I don't I don't know that it's bad, but it certainly makes the union limited in what they can do. And it means Safa Pico is, you know, barely going to be involved unless he drifts central. And when he's drifting central, you tell me what you think because, you know, you're at the games, you can see sort of the, the broader tactical thing. It looks to me like when, when Pico goes central, there's not a lot – uh, going on on the left wing. It looks like the fullback is stepping up, but maybe not until the ball's rotated over, so he's not looking to take that space. Uh, but I, I think the biggest problem with building up the right is that it means they really can only use the left wing as sort of that target outlet for balls over the top. Yeah, and there's an irony in that too because Fafa is fast enough to get that long ball over the top, and Harris can hit that ball over the top. But with all the build-up play coming down the right side of the field, your most dangerous goal scorer right now plays on the left. And, I mean, let's be honest, CJ hasn't scored in four games. Pontius hasn't scored this season. Ilsino has one goal uh, this season. So, I mean, he's your main threat. And it's weird that for the buildup going to one side, their biggest threat is on the other side. I don't know. I don't know. I still think it has to do with the number 10 with Ilsino not occupying that space because then when Fafa pulls over there, he really has nowhere to go with the ball. And out of all four of those players in the front four, he's probably the worst with his back to goal, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Fafa's... He's made to go forward. He's made to run on the balls. That's just that's just what his skill set offers, and it offers it in spades. But he's he's not good with his back to goal. And one of the one of the things I noticed the last uh, I think it was the last 15 minutes of the game, the Union actually didn't have that many turnovers against DC. But the ones they did have have is when they tried to get the ball onto the wing, and then they couldn't get it off again. And I think when Alden was dispossessed once, and Papa uh, was dispossessed once, and that's you know that's a big problem because that's where you want to be able to hold the ball is right around that final third late in the game. And and the only way to do that is to be able to offer support from the middle. And at this point, of course, it was Alberg not coming in, but uh, the same the same idea that that guy in the center is, is sort of your outlet. He is the way you get out of those bad situations. 
Let's talk about Harris Madunian in a little bit. You know, a really unique player and a guy that the Union really haven't had on their team before. You know, that that regista, that numbers, that deep lying playmaker, guy who who wants the ball from deep and operates from deep. Vince Noguera, I mean, you could say that he did a lot of the same things that Harris Madunian did, but he always had Brian Carroll playing next to him or a dedicated holder next to him. Vince was always more of a traditional number eight. What do you just think of Harris's style of playing? How it how it fits what they're trying to do on this team? something that I, I want to ask you because the the last podcast you did with Dave you talked about how Red Bull were able to take Harris out of the play and you didn't really have much of a response once once Virginia was going side to side with the ball instead of vertical there were very few ways for the Union to get forward and and I think that it's you know not so much that what the Union are doing with Harris's style it's that Harris's style is the Union style right now they they need him to work the ball to the back because it makes it much easier for Ray Gaddis to be a fullback and play simple, and if Ray Gaddis has to hit those 20, 30-yard balls that Rosenberry tried to hit, he's not going to be able to do it. Um, so Medunian's, you know, big skill is that under pressure, he's usually very good, and he can move the ball quickly once he's out of pressure. And his, I think the most surprising thing in this game has been his ability to, to do those little moves to get out of direct pressure in front of him, and that opens up the field a lot for Bedoya to turn and run. And that's been that's been something that I didn't expect to be able to see. It certainly wasn't in the highlight reels, but he he seems to have a way of juking out MLS defenders with ease. Yeah, it's crazy. He's sort of the master at letting other people using other people's momentum against them. It almost reminds me if you watch like a kick returner in football or a punt returner, how they might be ten or fifteen yards away from the nearest defender, and that one subtle shift or juke will put a guy completely off, and he'll be into space. Um, you know, a theory that I have with Harris, I haven't really been able to to look at it much, but Something I was thinking about is he, he's not really playing those big passes, those big diagonals on his first possession. His first possession in a buildup is usually tapping it back to the center back or rolling it over to the other center back or fullback, and then they'll eventually cycle the ball back to him, and then he can hit that big pass or that big diagonal and move it from there. I just, for whatever in the New York game, I don't know, his starting positions were so much deeper, and they just couldn't get him into, you know, he does most of his damage when he can get up to around the halfway line, and if you look at the chart, I think he used the same chart that I did, but he was just starting from from such a deep point. I mean, did you see that too? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's the way to defend him. I think you need to put people in front of him. And I think Red Bull at times had someone running at him, and they also they were willing to let Bradley Wright Phillips chase him from behind as well. And I think that, that back pressure is something that teams are going to use more and more to try and disrupt him. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I heard you guys last week talking about Jack Elliott, and, uh, and the same with Josh Yarrow, I think having a second guy back there that can spread the ball around is going to be more and more necessary as teams target Harris, because when you're sending one guy at him, he, he seems to be dealing with that pretty well. He can spread the ball around, he can play it simple if he needs to, but if you can send someone at him from behind, then he's going to have to play it quickly, and you're going to have to have someone else that can get those balls out of there, and, and Jack Elliott had two, two just complete lasers uh, against D.C. that that I, I don't think I'd, I'd bet on anyone other than Harris on the team to be able to pull off. Uh, so I, I think that's going to help in the future. But right now, the Union are using Harris as their primary point of going from back to front. And although it didn't stand out in D.C. as much because D.C.'s midfield remains, you know, just the Swiss cheese of the league. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened to Steve Birnbaum, but... Uh... They used to be pretty good back there. He's having a down year, too. You know, I'm going to do this backwards because I had the questions kind of written out differently. I knew this would just turn into a free-flowing conversation in about 10 seconds in. Um, But 
I, I, you know, I was going to ask about the four, two, three, one and what you think about Jim's insistence on sticking to it, but let, let me ask it backwards. Um, Harris, I mean, I, I've always, uh, you know, I've always been a guy who've, who've trumps on and on about the three, five, two, right. <laughs> Just cause I love the formation. I love how it plays in the past. I didn't think the union had the personnel to do it, but Harris Madunian really is made for that system. A guy who can sit, you know, in front of a, of a, of a three line, you know, center back crop there. And then you do have guys on this, on this team who can play wing back. I mean, do you, do you really see them being able to, to do that system if they tried? I mean, I, I want, and like deep down, I want people to say, no, they shouldn't do that. But ever since you, you put up a picture of how the team could look, and then that plus Jack Elliott emerging as a real option, I'm coming around more and more to the idea that this is a team that could benefit from, <laughs> from going for that system. But I, I think you're, the big point that you made originally with that is that the three-back system allows more protection for Madunian in to sit deep. Uh, so then the, the big question you have is sort of the one you brought up a couple minutes ago, which is, you know, if Medunian is not getting up around the midfield line, if he has to sit a little bit deeper um, and sort of play that real axis in the midfield, then who is who is making plays further up the pitch? Um, and I don't think that was something we thought would be an issue at the beginning of the year, but now I, I am sort of curious as to whether they have enough playmakers up there where if, if Medunian is even putting them in good positions in the final third, can they turn that into into real scoring chances? Well, the strange thing about it, I think when I when I pointed out the three five two early on, was that a lot of people were kind of slamming me, saying, "Well, you you know, you barely have two center backs that are worth a shit. So why would you put a third? Uh, so why would you put a third one on there?" But the first thing I would say to that is that when you play three five two, you're not necessarily don't think of it as putting three center backs on the field because you can play sort of hybrid you know, tweener kind of guys at the RCB and the LCB spot. For example, I think Gileano Wijnaldum could play like LCB, right? With Fabinho right. as the left wing back. So so don't think of it necessarily um, as putting three, you know, putting Anyewu and Marquez and, and whoever back there. But the irony also, and that's like the fourth time I've said irony in this podcast, but the, the, the irony about it is that we didn't know that the center back group would be as deep as it is, right? I mean, we didn't know that Jack Elliott was going to be anything. We didn't know that Aguchi Anyewu was going to be anything. We didn't know that Josh Yara would be healthy and available and that Richie Marquez might not be the part. So, I mean, it almost it almost seems like it tilts that way now as far as personnel, would you say? Yeah, I I think that, you know, when, when you talk about three center backs on there, that's what people think of as the defense because that's sort of how you lay out the formation on paper. But it, any team that you watch play a successful three-back system right now, when they don't have the ball, it looks like a five-back system. That's, that's sort of the point is that when you don't have the ball, you have a lot of bodies on that defensive line, which makes it very hard to get through. You, it makes it very hard to stretch you out. And so I, I think, you know, worrying about the having three center backs is not as much an issue um, to me defensively as making sure that those guys can get the ball out of the back. And I think now the union definitely have that ability. And beyond that, they also have a ton of energy in midfield. I really think the big, the big question for me is just playmaking. But this does bring up something that I want to, I want to ask you about already, although I didn't necessarily know it would be in this context. <laughs> and that's a, that's a, a somewhat forgotten man named Marisa Dio. So Moa Gu's back there, and where, where does he fit in in either a four-back or a three-back system on this team now? You know what? I Well, right, because when I was drawing that thing up originally, I was assuming everybody's healthy. I'll use you've, like 2012 Juventus as a template, right? Uh, yeah. Harris Madunian and his Pirlo, right? Um, 
nobody is Benucci, Barzagli, and Chiellini because you can't replicate those guys, obviously. But you can try Jack Elliott and Yarrow and Gooch and then maybe play Rosenberry or Fabinho as the wingbacks, right? Marisa Du would, would be like a Claudio Marquisio. Uh, Bedoya would be Arturo Vidal. I mean, he and Bedoya, I think Mo and Bedoya is sort of that that inverted tri- the front of the inverted triangle with Harris sitting behind him. I think they could roam and do some destroying and be pretty effective. Yeah, I, I think as long as you got as long as you have players on the wings who can make plays by themselves, then then that works fine. You just need you need someone who can basically. I mean, that's maybe that's what you sort of hope Wilsonio would have been from the beginning is a guy from a wide area who once you isolate him, he's gonna he's gonna make a meal with whoever's on top of him. Um, I'm also, man, I cannot wait to see what kind of email you get for comparing Bedoya, the most the most overrated player in MLS, to Arturo Vidal. <laughs> well, listen, nobody's comparing anybody to to uh, anybody from that 2012 Juventus team. But I'm just trying, you know, I'm just trying to put people into the, uh, you know, trying to pick a familiar team and a familiar three five two, and uh, you know, give people spots yeah, yeah. where they where they where they might fit. Obviously, okay. Well, listen, let me let me let me transition to this then. Um, Four two three one. We've seen nothing but the four two three one ever since Jim Curtin took over. I think there was one four four two in there in the twenty fifteen season opener. Um, we've been talking about this a lot up here. We've had a lot of quotes from him and from Ernie Stewart about it. And I guess I'll start in on it by saying that I I, I think what bugs me. Now, I like the four two three one. I think it's a great system. There's a reason a lot of teams around the world use it. There's a reason it was very popular in MLS for a long period of time. My problem is that when I look at Toronto FC or LA or whoever, and I see other teams that are able to play that but also come out and play something different, I just think this, this stiffness and this commitment to the shape without really trying something else, and also the idea that they've suggested that they can't learn something else because the players don't even really know the current system, like that to me is what set off alarm bells. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, we're kind of, kind of meandering on that, but give me your thoughts on that in general. I think I think there are a couple of things there. One is what what Toronto has been able to do is is incredibly incredibly just silly impressive. I mean, they've they've got one of the best organizing midfielders in MLS for sure, and that helps a lot. But but the way they're able to go between those two systems and is, is impressive. However, I, I will note that until I forget what the uh, the rookie's name is who emerged this year, but until that, if they didn't have their Beta Shore and Morrow wingbacks, then they looked a lot a lot tamer than they did when they had those guys. But I, I think that the, the interesting thing to me is that you know the three back systems that have emerged have emerged because they allow you to dominate those wide areas, and the whole reason the four two three one emerged was to dominate the center. Like it gives you an extra body in there, lets you really control that area. So naturally, the three-back or the three-back system is built to, you know, dominate the four-two-three-one. And so, thinking about that, it, it does make you a little wary about sticking with that system exclusively, because when you come up against the three-back team, they are the reason they're playing that system is to dominate the areas where you're softest. And that means you really need to be able to control the middle to beat them. And when you come up against a Toronto or even now, I think Yango Herrera at NYC is going to be a similar player to Bradley who can just dominate the center area. It's it's going to be difficult for you to get enough offensive attacks out of the wide areas to really beat them. And uh, I, I don't I don't see a way around that. I think I think the EU would be smart to to try to work in three back systems quicker sooner rather than later. But I also think that 
you know, when you watch this team play, and you probably see it too, there, there are numerous times during the game where uh, when they're trying to press, they, they don't do it that well. There's, you know, one player won't shadow or one player will press too early, and then you, you have these huge gaps. And that, to me, that signals that they're not, they're not ready for you know, next phase of concept development. And so I would be really worried about going both ways until, until you see that they can go, you know, full 90 where they, they really can control a game with their defensive structure. You played college soccer. I did not play college soccer. But, you know, in, in the Casa League, I played on South Philly United with a couple of ex-pros um, and a lot, of form, a lot of former college guys, right? So I, I like to think that I at least, you know, had tried to play at the highest level that, was, that I was capable of, right? Um, we, played, we, played, we played 3-5-2. We played 4-2-3. We played a bunch of different stuff. We're not professional players, obviously. But would you be offended at the insinuation that you know you can't learn another system or you can't try another system because you aren't currently grasping what you have if you're a professional Philadelphia Union player. Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I would be. I mean, the same way that I I remember when uh, when they signed Ogunjanyewu and I I asked him a question that was something you know along the lines of using experience as sort of a euphemism for being old, and he took offense to that. It's like you can't get you shouldn't get upset at me for you know pointing out the fact that you're old for a soccer player but at the same time he has that right to get offended and if I heard someone say that I in a certain way then I would get offended too but but really what you should want to do as a player is say alright well I need to be able to do this with one system so well that no matter what the other team does uh, you know they can't beat us and I, I think the union would probably be better going that way right now than trying to mix in new elements only because they haven't shown that over the course of even 90 minutes, let alone, you know, two games in a week or something like that, they can really adopt that system and, and prevent the sorts of mistakes that, uh, you know, lead to, lead to the, the horrible last five minutes that we saw against the D.C. where it looked like they were going to throw things away. C.J. Sapong, we know what kind of player he is. Uh, you know, a very good target man, a very good hold-up player who's been right around that double-digit goal mark for his entire career. You know, you can make the argument that CJ's primary responsibility on the field is not even to score goals. You know, it's to be the outlet up top, the hard worker, bang with the center backs and allow the, the wingers to slash in and, and, and get, get through the lines. But, um, I mean, I, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think about CJ this year and, and over the course of his union career and the way they use him? And, uh, you know, if, if, if you feel like he's, he's typecast into a certain role or if he can be – a Josie or a Fernando Adi or, or that kind of big player who does a lot of those good hold-up things well but can also score double-digit goals? Well, before I answer that, let me, let me get this at you because I, I know you've already been been annoyed at the primary proponent of this uh, <laughs> on Twitter. What, uh, give me, give me your, your sort of best arguments for, for Josie making the Gold Cup squad because I, I, like, I like what you've been saying and I just want to make sure they're, they're recorded here. My, my thoughts on, on Josie making the Gold Cup squad? Or not Josie, sorry, CJ. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, because I was going to say, he's not on there. <laughs> um, so, I, I um, you know, first of all, you look at the goal total. CJ's got eight. Dom Dwyer has five. Juan Agadello has seven. Jordan Mars has two. So what? I know CJ scored two penalties that he didn't earn. Um, he also poached a couple goals here and there. He scored one that was deflected. Um, so I guess he can't really go by the goal totals, but... Um, I, I don't see here. Here's my thing. 
I, th- I think that he's typecast into this role as a big, burly target forward who plays in the Philadelphia Union's very strict and very defensive system. Um, I, th- I think he's unfairly sort of cast into that role when he's not – he doesn't necessarily have to be that kind of guy. He didn't necessarily always play that way in Kansas City. Even when they threw him out on the wing, he did a lot of good things on the wing when Dom Dwyer uh, was playing center forward and Kai Kamara was on the other side. Um, Juan Agadella, we know what he is. He's not an international caliber player. Uh, Dom Dwyer, I, I don't know. Uh, Jordan Morris is young and he's got upside, but he hasn't been as good as CJ this year. Um, if this was a World Cup qualifier, we're building for the future, fine. But I, I just don't see the reason. I just really don't think that Morris and, and Dwyer have been better than CJ this year overall. No, I, I mean, I, I can't argue with that, actually. I, I, I like Dwyer a lot, so I will say that I I love that Dwyer is on this Gold Cup squad. But I, I, it really bothers me that CJ doesn't get the U.S. national team respect only because and like when you get to the, the bigger stages – I'm, I'm unconvinced that the U.S. is going to be controlling games. And if you're not controlling games and you want someone up top who's going to work and put in a defensive effort and really disrupt play from the first defensive line, then C.J., I mean, Dwyer obviously does, does this as well, but C.J. is as good as you're going to get in the U.S. pool. I mean, he, when you come into those games where you know you're going to be defending, he's a great guy to be able to throw on there and defend like hell. And, and like you said, he hasn't he hasn't maybe earned all the penalties and things like that. But he's also got calls like he gets to DC, where he gets you know thrown down or just shoulder barged from behind by Kofi Opari and doesn't get the the penalty call. I and mean, you know he certainly had plenty of plenty of plays this year where he's been run over without anything. So I I agree with you. I didn't really want to get you on record as as the guy saying it first. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I don't. I wish I had a better explanation than that. But I just again I just I just think that CJ. I don't want to say that his growth is stunted because it's not stunted, but. I just wish I had a, a synonym for like typecast, you know, because I don't think that he's just a hold-up player. But again, we don't get to see him as anything else here. So um, I, I asked Jim about that today, and I put that in the story that I did. And basically, I think what what Curtin said was, well, you know, they do have a couple hybrids on the roster. Jossie Zardes, you know, Bruce has used him as a striker before. Uh, Jordan Morris is younger, obviously. There's kind of an excitement around Dom Dwyer. Uh, Juan Agadello has done some flashy things in the past, so I don't think CJ has those qualities. He's not young. He's not the new guy. He doesn't do flashy things, but I don't. I just think overall, he's been better than those guys. But and that's ironic to hear it, you know, coming from me because I was the one who quote unquote, you know, started the, started the whole thing with Jim, where he bitched at me about it. But I, I've always been a fan of CJ, you know. So. Um, all right, where do I want to go from here? Let me, let me you know, let me, <clears throat> let's go to the coaching. Let me just throw a really generic one out there. Um, what do you think about the job that Jim has done and done this year and, and his evolution as a coach? Uh, so th- this is a, this is something that that I you know you could ask me this today and I'm gonna have one opinion. You could ask me the week and it might be different because I I struggle with it. I I think that that the teams are the team is better prepared when it goes on the field now than it, than it was last year or the year before. I think they come out with with a clearer plan, they come out with more organization, and when they make tweaks between games, I think they make they make smart tweaks. Uh, they don't always do it as quickly as I would like, but they make smart tweaks. The the in game management, I still I, I wish it was better. I wish it was better because I, I think in games the UEN often get in in one mode and can't get out of it. They if Route One isn't there, then it becomes a messy game, and they also can't um, just switch from, you know, high pressure into a more defensive shell very cleanly. Um, 
And that, that's sort of, you know, when you talk about going to the three-back from the four-back system, it's the same sort of thing where it, it's understanding your roles to such an extent that, you know, the, the shape doesn't matter as much. It's really just about what your responsibility is and who you see around you and how far away they are. You know, just looking at the regular cues. Where's, you know, what's the space? Where's the man? Where's the ball? Where's my teammate? And and those things don't don't seem to translate throughout 90 minutes. And, you know, there are times where the union look organized and there are times where, you know, I just can't believe I watched Patrick Niarco drop off the line 10 yards, pick the ball up, and take a shot in the 90th minute. Like, it, it just makes no sense that he has that much space. And, you know, there are a couple of times that happened to Giuliano Winaldo throughout the game where he just gave the cross so much space. And, that you know, that's sort of understanding only the game goals. And I, I, don't, I don't get the sense that the players have that depth of understanding yet, that they, they need you to really be able to, to go on a run and take over and look like an actual contender. And that, that worries me about Jim, but at the same time, I, I value, I, I think you, you typed this up, you know, when, when Ernie talked about being a good man manager and said Jim was one of the best, I think that's incredibly valuable, and I almost think that's so valuable that what you want to do is find assistant coaches who are able to cover the tactical stuff in a lot of detail, and I, you know, I of course don't want to just, you know, come in this podcast and shit on all the assistants. <laughs> But I, I wonder if, if they could get more out of out of those roles from a tactical perspective, because you know, like, a, a, did you ever see the Dandy United where you know Brian Clough is, you know, he's a he's a mouthpiece and he's smart, but you need someone else in the background running all the tactics on the team. Yeah, absolutely. And even you could go back to what what made like Rene Muhlenstein so popular in the first place was the things that he did at Manchester United, you know. And uh, I, I don't yeah. really. I, it's hard to quantify what they're getting from Mike Sorber and BJ Callahan. You know, I wrote a little bit about the set piece. Uh, success that they had last year with the little routines here and there. Uh, this year, I mean, I could coach them on set pieces. Just have Harris Madunin whip the most dangerous ball you can in, into the box and aim for the trees, you know, so they don't need to get fancy there. I think Mike Sorber does a lot of the tactical stuff too, but again, I'm not, you know, a lot of the times when I'm down at practice, you know, I'm there on like a Wednesday or Thursday when they do a lot of their just sort of scrimmaging and short-sighted stuff, and they're not really into the, the meat and potatoes of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I do appreciate the fact that Jim – they do a lot of good preparation during the week. He doesn't do a lot of yelling and yapping and whatever during games, but my experiences as a youth referee, I've noticed that the coaches who do the least amount of yelling and, and yapping and blathering about, they, they tend to be the better coaches. So I think he does a lot of things well. I think he could use more money, of course, but I think I, I agree with you where, you know, I'd like to see more meaningful substitutions, you know, stuff that's not as predictable. We know that Jay Simpson's going to come in and CJ's going to go over to the wing, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, Derek Jones might come in to close out the game. I, 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 th I think the substitutions is probably. I mean, would you say is that is that probably the number one spot that you would identify as those those late game subs not really having much of an impact? Uh, I think I think the subs not having much of an impact is is a problem. I also think it, it's weird because I don't think Jim's ever had that much depth before, and so you know, in the time in the past, maybe he's sort of been constrained and forced to go with you know these three guys. And it becomes sort of sort of a habit, and also, uh, you know, it, it it's never been the sort of thing that he's probably been been best at. But I I, I think the, if I was to identify one thing that really stood out to me as being an issue, it's that when the Union getting games where things aren't going their way, they don't they don't have a very effective plan B that they can turn to quickly and that they can execute well. Um, they they just sort of they can double down on what they do, and that's about it. And, uh, you know, to be able to sort of, what you said about Toronto, to be able to develop, if not a different shape, at least a, a different way of approaching a match in the game, I think that's, uh, that's something that will be very helpful. I think, 
you know, you, you look at the first uh, NYC game as a prime example of a time where, you know, Bedoya said they came out and wanted to press after halftime, even though they've been pressing really hard the whole first half. And you, you just wonder, you know, is that is that really what you want to do when you know NYC's going to come out and make some tweaks and you sort of could sit back and see what they do and then figure out how to approach it? Uh, that, to me, on the surface, seems like a, a better way to do it. Uh, one thing I, I should have mentioned, though, before is I, let me know what you think about this because you probably have a bit more detail, but I, I am impressed with with Jim's willingness to accept any any sort of input. So he, he relies on the stats um, sort of to, to justify his decisions sometimes, but it also seems like he's willing to let them inform his opinions, but also willing to, to dismiss them if, if he doesn't think they're useful. Um, how, do you think, how do you think you sort of incorporated that? Have you noticed anything? I think it's interesting. You know, I, I think the first main use of the the data and statistics and analytics that I identified was when uh, they actually used it on the on the physical on the fitness side of things last year you know if you remember those Wednesday Saturdays where they were running the same dudes out there and they had no rotation at all uh, because they like you said they didn't have much depth and so they said well Brian Carroll only ran you know 3.6 miles uh, today so he should be fine for Saturday uh, you know, and Chris Pontius, you know, we have him on a minutes restriction like Joel Embiid or something. Um, that was interesting. But I'm trying to think. I, I don't I don't know if you remember the quote. There was something a couple weeks ago where he said something very specific about the data says this. And that's why we're doing something. Do you remember what that quote was? I can't remember. Yeah, what it was. I, I don't remember what it was, but I remember him saying that we're using the decision. Um and that's probably where, yeah, that's probably exactly what I'm thinking. But I don't know the quote. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I don't, I don't. It's interesting. I don't see. Jim, I didn't peg Jim when he took over as being a big data or big analytics guy. I didn't think he was the Bruce Arena 2.0, you know. But um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I like numbers to a certain extent. But if you read my stuff and your stuff as well, we don't we don't get too much into, you know. Chant, uh, goal chance per shot XG blah 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 whatever the hell you know like I, I like to focus on like one one level below the surface you know I think I think the most underrated statistic or the most underrated metric in soccer is key passes um, you know because that tells you what your number 10s are doing or in the Philadelphia Union case what they aren't doing um, I also like to look more and I think you're probably the same way as I am I like to look more at where things are happening on the field um, you know, charts and maps and stuff like that versus, you know, this guy, um, you know, completed 78% of his passes and stuff like that. Cause I think a lot of numbers lack context. And so, you know, I think the way I like the way you do it with a lot of visuals and stuff like that. I just think those are a better ex- explainer. I like data, but I'm not like fully on board, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I'm the same way in that I used to, I used to use a lot more numbers in my pieces and then I, I sort of, you know, stepped back and said, well, you know, there's there's analytics in soccer and there's tactics, and and I certainly don't have the, you know, don't have the depth of, you know, statistical knowledge to be able to create new, you know, statistical, you know, constructs out of thin air. But I, you know, I can look at the game and say, all right, you know, you start with the, the pass chart or something like that, and then you say, well, what does this tell us? And then we can look at what actually happened in the game and say, all right, well, this is probably we can give meaning to those numbers. I don't think the numbers necessarily have meaning in themselves, but you can give them meaning with sort of looking at the visuals, looking at, uh, you know, where players were, what they did when, and who was around them. And I think that that's probably as far as I'd be willing to go. I, you know, was it, did Jim say something about um, 
I remember he said that Harris covered Harris and Fabinho covered the most ground consistently. I remember that was one of his arguments for like people give Harris a bad name for not being mobile. <laughs> yeah, um, that might have been it. It might have been something like that. I, I don't know, but he was using a very specific number to justify something that I thought was important. And now, for the life of me, I can't remember <laughs> what it was. Oh, he, he did do the. He did do the like teams that make more than four subs don't usually win or something, or like more than four changes between games. That's what it was. That yeah, I think that's what it was yeah. when he was talking about squad rotation, right? Yeah, yeah. He said we, we looked at the numbers and they said if you make more than four changes, then you don't win or something like that. Yeah. That's strange, but I, you know the, I, the 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 funny thing about that was, you know, the Jim's probably best achievement this year is making those personnel changes. And Dave and I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Was moving Bedoya back to the eight, moving Pontius to the other side, putting Pico on the field, uh, putting Allberg back on the field, you know, moving things around, benching, jo- not benching Jones, but, you know, I, understanding that he didn't have to be on the field. Um, but, yeah, I just, you know, let me, let, me, let me leave it with this, then I'll ask you one final question. If, if you could make one tactical tweak to the union right now or one little quirk or change or something that you think would help them the most, um, wh- what would that be? I'm not sure this is the, the perfectly answer to the question, but what I would do is I would I would just want the back line to stay together better. I, I would want I want the center backs to stop dropping so far off of the the fullbacks when they're defending. I would want um, you know there there to be fewer cues that tell them to drop. I mean, one of the things that that does drive me crazy about the team, and I you know I not in a, not in a, I hate this about them way, but it does kind of bug me is the number of times, and you can see in the D.C. game, that both center backs individually will get will get pulled back out of the defensive line for not just, you know, a second or two, but, but for, you know, three to five seconds where you have this this bulge in the line that's if some other team wanted to play, you know, if it's an able five yards back, some team can play around the outside and they have that extra five yards of space. And that, if I could switch one thing, it would be keeping that line far tighter together and, Giving up a little bit, with giving up a little bit in the wide areas, especially with the two big bodies you have in the middle. Giving up a little in the wide areas to keep a tighter back line and make sure that when you step up, you step up together. And that when guys make runs, they're not dragging a center back behind the rest of the line. I mean, that's just maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, and you know, Mike Silver is sitting there right now or whenever he listens to this, because I'm sure he does, and just you know, <laughs> tisking me. But but I that's just that's the one thing that I noticed consistently that doesn't get pulled back too far. And if, if that's a real tactic that they use, I it's one of the few I would just openly disagree with. Well, let me. I actually lied. I have a follow up to that, so this would be the last question. <laughs> um, you did that really good piece uh, with Jim a couple weeks ago on PSP, and he was explaining sort of what they changed to start the winning streak, right? And I think one of the things that he mentioned there specifically was that they were sitting the center backs a little bit deeper, but also I think that they wanted to, you know, it's it's like when you play, when you play three, five, two, what we would do is we would pull the weak side wing back over to make a a four man back line. Right. So when the one wing back went up, the other would stay home. Um, And I think that's kind of what they've been doing now, whereas if Fabinho starts to go up the left, Ray will kind of sit back a little bit and vice versa. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what they said. Although I think what he was saying for the center backs is that he was dropping them deeper in possession. So when they had the ball, he was dropping them back. Oh, okay, right, 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 yeah. Um, The the fullback thing, yeah, that's exactly what he was saying, is they they really thought they were getting both of them uh, up the field at the same time, and it was really just allowing them to be destroyed on the counter. 
All right, Adam, I'll throw it to you. Um, was there anything that we didn't uh, mention that's that's burning a hole right now that you want to talk about? Uh, no, I, I do want to say that I, I enjoyed I enjoyed you guys discussing Jesse Marsh uh, leaving the game early <laughs> because that is that is something that bothered the heck out of me. Um, let, the other week, I think it was the 21st episode. Um, but also, I, uh, I am curious what you think about this upcoming game um, against New York and New England. And if you think any kind of rotation will happen, especially with Bedoya out, what it'll look like? Well, I saw what I thought was the starting lineup today, and I think it's going to be similar to what you saw in the in the uh, Harrisburg game, um, which is to say that it's going to be predominantly uh, the starting eleven, but maybe two or three or four changes, and then they'll go back to the full strength eleven on Sunday. I just don't think that Jim. I just don't think that Jim's a big believer in. And I keep using the word squad rotation. Squad rotation is not the only. The only team that can rotate their squad is Real Madrid or Chelsea or whatever the hell. When you're when you're when you're playing uh, Barry in in round sixteen of the FA Cup, you know. But they do have, like you said, they do have depth this year, and they can swap out more positions. You know, tactically, Red Bull has been interesting this year because they don't. They're not as much of the high pressing team as they used to be. Not the way they did it last year and years past. And I think the Union had them figured out a little bit because they could hit that blind switch and and move that clump of, of pressing attackers all the way over to the other side of the field. But um, I don't know. I, I I think they lose on Wednesday and then they come back and win on Sunday. And uh, we actually have a legitimate playoff push here. I think the Open Cup, look, it didn't happen in 2014. It didn't happen in 2015. So I, I would be fine with them losing and uh, just focusing on the regular season, you know? All right, well, let me, let me ask you one more, then I, I also let. I have one more question for you. <laughs> um, the, so in the, in the other, uh, one of the things that stood out to me that I remember very clearly, I've been thinking about since I heard you guys talk about it, is saying that uh, the, the defense in Bethlehem the other weekend against Harrisburg was the defense we sort of expected to see at the beginning of the year. And, and I'm wondering if anything you saw against D.C. changed your mind on that at all. You know, I don't know if anything changed my mind about it, but I, I just, I guess if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Um, you know, Ray Gaddis is playing well. Jack Elliott's playing well. Gucci Onyehu is playing well. Wynaldum or Fabinho, you could go either way on the left there. But uh, I don't know. I think it's beyond. I think it's what I would say is that I think it's beyond a benching and it's beyond a lesson now. I think maybe Curtin did have intentions to put those guys back in, um, but it's not any further indictment on the play of Keegan or Richie or whoever. People got to remember that Richie was part of that that first shutout in L.A. Uh, Yara was injured. Uh, Fabinho has been the guy still. So really it was just three changes um, in the middle and on the right. But I don't know. I thought, you know, I thought if they had lost against DC, you could, you would have been able to say, well, that group that went four and O is now four and four. So that would justify putting those guys back on the field. But now they're five and three and that makes a big difference. That's a big difference from being 500. So I don't know. I guess you just leave it out there. And if it, if it gets to a, a point where that, that, that grouping goes back to being 500 or it's untenable, then I guess you would switch it up. So do we have, do we have time for me to keep asking you questions? Yeah, for sure, man. No, I, 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 abs- I might as well keep throwing them at you. For Absolutely. Time. Yeah. All right. So, so now I, I saw you tweeted that uh, Fabian Herbers is back in full practice. What do you think that means for Marcus Epps? I think it means that Marcus is probably back behind him on the depth chart. You know, I think Marcus really? is, you don't think he's done enough. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, I think the problem, one of the problems that we have is that we allow ourselves to get excited when a young guy does one thing, uh, that's, that we talk about, you know? And, uh, I think we do that with Derek Jones too. Derek Jones is still very, very raw and very, very new. Yeah. And just because a guy comes out and makes a couple great tackles or is one good performance doesn't need me mean that he needs to be an everyday starter or in the case of Marcus Epps, a guy who's off the bench every single time. I mean, why should Marcus Epps be in every single game when Keegan Rosenberry, Josh Yarrow, Warren Craval, a bunch of dudes aren't aren't making the eighteen, you know, or aren't aren't even getting time. So I like what I've I've seen from him, but Fabian is the superior player right now. So if he's healthy, you put him in. Would you would you consider Fabian in the middle based on the personnel available now? <laughs> you know what? It's funny you bring that up because I'm surprised that Jim didn't try that yet because. Do you remember that time last year where they had uh, where Barnetta was injured and Alberg and Herbers were both healthy and Jim went with Herbers at the number ten, two games in a row. I think they played at DC with Herbers as a ten, and the next game they played Herbers as a ten. And I thought he did okay there. I mean, he didn't do any le- anything less than Ilsenior or Alberg. Yeah, no, I, I think I mean, you're going to get more energy out of him defensively, which at this point is sort of the minimum you'd ask from that role. Um, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know why Elsino will be the clear answer above him, that's for sure. I thought, I'm disappointed right. in Elsino because I thought his creativity there and, and with having fewer defensive responsibilities would um, you know, allow him to kind of thrive in that role. But I've just been disappointed with his lack of interest in, in checking to the ball and getting on the ball. And my biggest problem with Elsino is that there's no end product. You know, he'll, he'll beat one guy with an accidental elastico nutmeg and then he'll try to d- do it again or something and he'll lose possession. But he's just... It's frustrating because you see the flashes of brilliance there, but there's just no end product. I'm, I would play her. I'd play Herbers there for sure. Yeah, you'll see. I think in the seventy some, or I guess it was earlier, but uh, in the last game, he dusted Ian Hartz at one point, got him, got to the end line, and then just put his cross far over everybody, and you're just like, what? <laughs> that sums him up so well. I cut. I cut but this clip. My, I cut this I'll clip a while back. A while back, where um. Ilsenio beat some guy with like an elastico and then he dribbled into the corner into like a three-man trap and then he like lost the ball out of bounds or something. <laughs> and it was just like, to me, that was the prototypical Ilsenio play because there's such a great opening move to the sequence and then you see Bedoya throw his arms up in frustration, you know? That's, yeah, that's, that's like the Andrew Winger dribbling out of bounds thing where you're like, well, look at, look at all that speed and power going directly out of play. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, but no, man, I just... Uh, there's a lot of interesting things. Now I'm glad you asked me about that stuff because I completely forgot about it. But uh, we'll uh, we'll see what happens with that. Well, that said, um, let's wrap it up there, man. It was a great discussion. Um, we'll definitely do it again sometime. And I appreciate your knowledge. And like I said, I read you know everything that you that you put up there. And uh, if for the listeners who, if you if any listeners out there haven't read Adam's stuff, definitely do it because he knows what he's talking about with tactics. And as you can hear, he and I are on the same page with a lot of the the stuff that we uh, identify. Uh, through the team. So again, Adam, uh, Philly soccer page, uh, read the tactical breakdowns, reviews, uh, anything that he puts up there. Adam, it was a pleasure, man. We'll do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I had a great time. Okay. Take care. And thanks again, everybody for listening. It's always soccer in Philadelphia episode 23.